Well then, good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City. My name is Eric Metaxas. It's a thrill to see so very many of you here tonight. This is what we uh, call a full house. And um, if you don't mind my asking, I just want to know how many of you are actually here? Would, would you? Maybe, uh, maybe a show of hands and I can just... Uh, All right, you don't want to play ball? It's fine with me, all right? It's fine with me. Uh, but really, there are quite a few of us here, and some people still even, in, even at the reception, you can see over there. The reception continues, even though this has, uh, has started. But I know people are going to be showing up late, um, and we are going to have uh, difficulty. So if you have a, a seat next to you, uh, or if you can scooch in, can I say scooch at the Union League Club? I guess I just did, because uh, they'll send their thugs that they'll just drag you out if you use those kinds of words. But, um, but anyway, yeah, grab, do grab a, grab a seat. Now, as many of you know, let me ask, how many of you, uh, the, for, is there anyone here uh, for whom this is your first Socrates in the City event? Wow, a fair, a fair amount of you. Well, you're in for it now. Um, Yes. Uh, okay, well, so then let me break it down for you to tell you what it is that we do here. Um, Socrates in the city takes its name from Socrates. Uh, just to kind of eliminate any confusion there. In fact, I hope nobody's chewing gum. <laughs> More specifically, not only do we take our name from Socrates, we take our name and our idea from Socrates' famous statement that the unexamined life is not worth living. So we come here sort of to examine our lives and the big questions. Now, I have to point out, uh, you might not know this, but there's a group of academics who call themselves the Socrates Seminar, not, not to be confused with the Jesus Seminar, but, but sort of similar idea. And they, they maintain that Socrates never actually said the unexamined life is not worth living. <laughs> they, uh, although they admit that there's a 29% chance that he did say it, so uh, they voted on that. Um, they say that what he probably really said, if you break it all the way down, uh, is party hardy, <laughs> which really has a quite different meaning than the unexamined life is not worth um, living. Um, and probably party hardy was changed, you know, in the Middle Ages by the Greek monks, monks of Mount Athos. You know, they just kind of, they monkey with that. They don't have a lot of respect for words, you know. And that's probably how it came to be thought of as... Um, the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, but, but here's a question, and this is my question. How do we know that the Socrates Seminar folks actually said what they said? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I'm going to need to see some proof. And until then, I'm just going to assume that Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. 
and this whole thing is based on that, so we just need to go with it. So I hope you can appreciate that. Um, but in fact, a big part of what this is about is examining our lives, um, asking the big, uh, sometimes the eternal questions, what we sometimes like to call life, God, and other small topics, right? And we've trademarked that, so don't use it. Um, over the years, if you've come to Socrates and City, you have heard from a variety of uh, august folks on the big questions of life. We've heard from a knight of the British Empire. Anybody here for that? You don't even know what I'm talking about. Uh, sir, that would be Sir John Polkinghorne. Uh, we've heard from a baroness, uh, from former uh, White House uh, VIPs, from scholars and philosophers and writers and poets and theologians, um, and all of them have been, I must say, very impressive. Uh, but tonight, we wanted to do something different. We wanted to just kind of kick out the traces and just do something totally different, maybe have like a good, old-fashioned hoedown right here, or maybe I should say hootenanny, hootenanny right here at the club with, you know, bales of hay and cornbread fiddlers and stuff, uh, but the Union League Club was not amenable to that idea. They're, they can be a little fussy that way, and uh, they, uh, in a sort of a snarky email, they said, you know, they actually, they actually said this, they said, uh, hay is for horses, okay? <laughs> like, I've never heard that before. But... Um, so instead, you know, we uh, decided, okay, we're going to just go back to doing what we've always done, which is have an extremely impressive speaker, and I just want to apologize for that. I'm sorry. That's, uh, that was not what we planned. Um, it's just been done before, you know what I'm saying? But um, we, we, we decided we'd go that route and just have another amazing speaker. Um, now, of course, most of you know, I hope all of you know, that the Pope was just in town. Hold your applause. Was just in town. And we did try uh, to get him. <laughs> Justin, we'll show them next time, won't we? They don't believe it can be done. We tried. We tried to get him. But as you know, you probably saw on TV last night as he was jetting away on his Alitalia special papal aircraft, which is quite seriously called Shepherd One. Did you know that? That is, not a, that is not a joke, or it, it is a joke, but it's also true. It's amazing. Uh, it's, uh, it's hard to believe, but it's actually seemingly called Shepherd One. And um, there's not a Shepherd Two, is there? That's the College of Cardinals travels around a Shepherd Two. Um, but, uh, but he, you know, he, he, he's gone, so he's not going to be here tonight. Uh, and I have to say I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed. Um, but it is interesting to see how... His being here in this city just in a few days um, really did draw attention to the big questions. Quite seriously, people are talking and thinking about big and important things, and that's a result um, of his being here. And obviously, that is what we try to do uh, as we, we bring in speakers here. Um, so I was, even though he couldn't be here tonight to, to hang with us, uh, I was really uh, thrilled to see the effect he had on the sort of cultural climate of the city, and I, personally, I'm just amazed that we have a pope with a German accent. That's, 
And the only question I want, this is the big question I want to ask him is, what is the Aramaic for Epfelstrudel? That's my, and obviously now I'm not going to get an answer. So, uh, so no, we don't have a, we don't have a Pope uh, tonight at Socrates in the city, not even one. And I apologize because we really were, we were just very, very close. I think, um, I think another 500 bucks, we would have sealed the deal. Um, <laughs> but you know, we were, we were playing hardball with the honorarium and we got burned and it serves us right. You, you win some, you lose some. Uh, I believe Socrates also said that. <laughs> or at least some, some people claim he said that. Um, and regarding the honorarium, wasn't it Socrates who said, you got to pay to play? <laughs> or, or perhaps that was Alcibiades. Or Jimmy the Greek, I don't know. But the point is, <laughs> it was wisdom and we didn't heed it. So he's not here. So bottom line, no shepherd of Rome tonight, okay? But we do have some consolation prizes along the lines of some other theological luminaries including uh, an Anglican bishop, who will be speaking eventually, I assure you, uh, and some others. Um, now, of course, tonight we are truly privileged to have the very bishop of Durham himself, Tom Wright. And tonight, we at Socrates in the City are asking one of the biggest questions one can ask, one of the questions that's really so big you wouldn't dare uh, ask it in polite society uh, out there in Manhattan outside of this uh, Room, and that is, did Jesus rise literally from the dead? That's kind of a big uh, question, wouldn't you think? And if that's not big enough, we also kind of want to ask, uh, and what about it? If it's true, then what? What does that mean for us? So that's, that's kind of big. It's the subject, at least partially, of, uh, of N.T. Wright's talk and the subject of his brand new book, Surprised by Hope, which we will have available for him to sign when this is over. Now, we have had um, Bishop Wright here once before, and usually, you know, you can guess if we have somebody back, um, it's kind of a clue that we really enjoyed uh, having them very, very much the first time. Um, although this time, honestly, it is just a fluke. <laughs> yeah. Well, what can I say? Um, no, seriously, what I can say is we are just super thrilled uh, to have N.T. Tom Wright with us tonight. Uh, he's one of the foremost, in case you didn't know it, New Testament scholars in the world, is the author of very many books. He is also, as I've said, the Bishop of Durham in the U.K. since 2003, and before that was, among other things, the canon theologian of Westminster Abbey, um, which I believe is some kind of megachurch filled with jumbotrons and <laughs> really, really cool audiovisual stuff. Um, it really reaches the current generation, who I'm told are just really visual. So you need to do that with the jumbotrons and stuff. And you've got to meet them where they're at. And you know who said that? You've got to meet them where you're at? I believe it was the pre-Socratic Thales who said that. Uh, now, if you didn't know that Thales was a pre-Socratic, don't feel bad, because he didn't know it either. So, there you go. Um, okay, so our format, the usual format, is we'll be hearing from our august speaker for 35 or 40 minutes. Uh, after that, we'll have a goodly amount of time for Q and A. Uh, we should be finished uh, about 8.15. We try to be very uh, punctual. So, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, N.T. Wright.
Thank you, Eric. I think it was Aristotle who said you should never work with children or animals or stand-up comics. (laughs) I I should apologize about my voice. I'm going to stand as close to the microphone as I can. Since I've been in this wonderful city for the last four or five days, I've picked up a very nasty cold, and I'm not blaming anyone personally, but I could have done without it right now. And it just happens to have taken my voice, so I'm going to try and speak um, reasonably softly, but I hope still clearly and intelligibly. Can you hear me at the back? Is that all right? Is it coming through? Good. Okay. And I do apologize. It feels kind of strange, actually, as though I'm talking through through a screen, but I'll do my best. I was thrilled to be asked back because Maggie and I thoroughly enjoyed being with you, I guess it was 18 months ago, October 06, I think, talking about a previous book, Simply Christian, and Harper San Francisco, in their wisdom, have put on the cover of this new book a very similar picture to the previous one, indicating, I think, that they think it should be treated as some kind of a sequel, though it's not really quite like that. This book, Surprised by Hope, um, attempts at the beginning to summarize the argument of a much longer book, which I published mm, five years ago, called The Resurrection of the Son of God, in which I set out as fully as I knew how um, the arguments for believing that Jesus of Nazareth was raised bodily from the dead. Now, I have to tell you about that book. It's about 750 pages long, and uh, I sent it when it came out, as I send everything I write to my parents and my father, who never, bless him, read any theology before his sons started writing, um, now reads everything I write. And because he's long since retired, he's in his late 80s, he sits down straight away and starts right in, pauses for meals and uh, sleep and things and carries on. And it was three days after he had received the book that I got a phone call, a rather breathless phone call, saying, I finished it. And I said, finished it in three days. That's amazing. He said, and you know what? He said, I really started to enjoy it after about page 600, which, <clears throat> which I thought was one of, one of the nicest backhanded compliments I've ever had. And <clears throat> Um, my, my dad used to work in the timber business, what I guess you'd call the lumber business, and I said to him, the thing is, Dad, it's like a tree. If it doesn't have a really good root system, the trunk isn't going to stand up and be fruitful. And he said, yeah, I figured that, but I've always preferred the upper branches myself because uh, I'm not going to attempt to reproduce the argument of the book, but just to, to show you why that is what it is. In order to understand what it is we're talking about when you say, did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead, there's been so much misinformation around on the meaning of resurrection that I found I had to dig very deep and go back into the classical world and the Jewish world and the early Christian world and say, just what were they talking about before I could then come back and say, now, do we agree with what they were saying about it? Because, and uh, uh, this I think is germane both to the question of Jesus and to the question of our own future hope, the word resurrection has for many people been a very fuzzy word over the last couple of hundred years in the Western world and has often been simply a rather pretty way of saying life after death or possibly going to heaven. The trouble is that the language of going to heaven that we in the Western world have adopted does scant justice to what is actually there in the Bible, in the teaching of the earliest Christian writers, 
so that when people think of dying and then being somewhere else, they think of a disembodied reality, maybe a soul floating off up to a disembodied heaven, maybe listening to people playing harps and sitting on clouds and that sort of thing. This, this is very, very common in the literature and indeed in the, some of the hymns and the prayers that have grown up in the Western church, both Catholic and Protestant, both liberal and conservative, over the last 200 years. And it's recently come in for some stick. I, uh, last time but one, I think, that I was in America, I did what I always try to do, which is visit one of your great cultural icons. So I went and bought a coffee at Starbucks. And on the, on the, uh, the, 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 the cup that I got, my takeaway, there was uh, the, a little philosophical saying. Apparently they print these sayings. And I, I actually kept the cup and I kept it in a safe place so that I could bring it here and use it as exhibit A precisely for this talk. And on the day when I was packing my bags uh, six days ago, in my haste, I left it behind. So I actually looked it up on the web because the guy who wrote the thing that I'm going to quote has got his own website. He's a correspondent from the Los Angeles Times called Joel Steen or Stein. And uh, he quotes what he said, and then there's some discussion about it. And it goes like this. Heaven is totally overrated. It seems boring. Clouds, listening to people play the harp. It should be somewhere you can't wait to go, like a luxury hotel. Maybe blue skies and soft music were enough to keep people in line in the 17th century. But heaven has to step it up a bit. They're basically getting by because they only have to be better than hell. And <clears throat> now, isn't that interesting as a cultural comment? A, it's boring. Why would you want to stay there? And B, the reason that there is a heaven is because the world is run on a sort of carrot and stick principle. And if there are a few carrots for people who are good, as well as sticks warning people who are bad, then maybe public morality won't collapse in a little sordid heap after all. And that, frankly, ladies and gentlemen, is a pretty low-grade view of religion in general and of Christianity in particular. Because actually, resurrection is not about going to heaven. Resurrection is what happens after when God makes a new world and gives us new bodies to live in it. Resurrection never was about life after death. Resurrection always was about life after life after death. Let me say it again because, to my surprise, I find people don't always get it the first time. I didn't misspeak, as I gather your politicians now say. Um, I... <clears throat> When I said life after life after death, I'm actually, I was going to call the book that. You know, it's called Surprised by Hope with a hat tip to C.S. Lewis, Surprised by Joy. And actually, the publishers kept getting muddled up with those two. But uh, originally, I was going to call it Life After Life After Death. And I discovered that as the publishers tried it on people, that phrase kept on getting shrunken back to life after death because people assumed it was a misprint. The point about resurrection is that it always in the ancient classical world or Jewish world denoted not where you are immediately after you die, but a new embodied state at some further stage thereafter. If you talk about resurrection, you're talking about a two-stage post-mortem reality. You see this quite easily if you look at the Gospels. 
Here, here is Jesus dying on the cross on Good Friday. Where is he then? He is dead. He is with the dead. He is, according to that saying, when he spoke to the thief beside him in Luke's gospel, he is in paradise. Paradise is not the ultimate place because three days later, according to Luke, he is raised from the dead. That is a two-step process, even for Jesus himself. And the whole New Testament is based on the belief that what God did for Jesus, he's going to do for all Jesus' people. How then do we know that Jesus was raised from the dead? I'm actually taking part as we speak in a little to-and-fro debate with a scholar from uh, North Carolina called Bart Ehrman, whose work may have um, uh, come across your radar screen. He wrote a book called God's Problem last year, and beliefnet.com have got him and me doing a little to-and-fro. And it comes back again and again to basically, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead or don't you? Because if you do, everything else looks different. And if you don't, we're still where we were. How then, very briefly, do I say that we can believe that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead? And say it as a historian. Sorry, we may have a... Have we, have we got a problem here? Is it good? Good, thanks. Um, first, you have to be quite clear, as I say, about what resurrection means. And I've tried to tried to spell that out. But then out beyond that, it's really important to see how uh, the belief in resurrection actually shifted in early Christianity. You see, some of the ancient Jews believed in resurrection, the Pharisees did, who were a kind of a a center-left pressure group in first century Judaism. The aristocratic Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection because people who believe in resurrection are likely to do revolutionary things. If they believe God is going to transform the whole world, then wow, let's get on with that here and now. Not a good idea if you happen to be in power and rich as the Sadducees were. But the doctrine of resurrection we find in the Jewish texts remains quite fuzzy and unclear. It doesn't get sharpened up that much. And what we find in all the early Christian texts right across the first two centuries, both the biblical ones and the post-biblical writings, is a remarkable sharpening up and mutation from within the Jewish worldview. For a start, There is no spectrum of belief in early Christianity. It's a a very interesting thing. When people die and families get together to mourn, they tend to revert to type. They tend to do what their family have always done when faced with death. And they tend to say the sort of things that they've always said. That's how it works. When the great occasions of life come, you go back to doing what you do because you do it. But all the early Christians for whom we have evidence right across the board said this extraordinary thing that they were not going to a disembodied heaven solely, nor was their life just going to be snuffed out, nor were they going to be reincarnated. That was one of the the standard classical options. Yeah, and again, one of the Socratic ones, and uh, it's, it's dubious as to how much of that he said too, but we won't go there at the moment. But they all said that they were looking forward to resurrection, to life after life after death. And you have to say, why did they do that? What generated that? So there is no spectrum of belief in early Christianity about resurrection. They basically all believe it's going to happen. 
Likewise, resurrection for the Jews was kind of a peripheral doctrine. They believed that God would look after them after their death, and from time to time they discussed what the resurrection would be like. Very interesting discussions. But it's not a major topic. Whereas in early Christianity, for most early Christian writings, it's hard to imagine those writings happening without resurrection. Take resurrection out of St. Paul, and you'll find that most of his writings just collapse like a house of cards. It's come from the periphery to the center. Thirdly, it's been sharpened up. Some of the Jews who believed in resurrection seem to have thought of it in terms purely of resuscitation, coming back into a body exactly like this one, and maybe ultimately having to die again. Who knows? They weren't clear. Others who talked about resurrection talked in terms of a sort of astral being that would shine like a star. They weren't clear what resurrection would involve. But all the early Christians for whom we have evidence were quite clear that the resurrection body was actually going to be a body like this one, but transformed, not resuscitated, but a body that had gone through death and out the other side into a new sort of life that death now couldn't touch. And then most particularly, all Jews for whom we have evidence who believed in resurrection Remember, as I say, not all Jews did believe in resurrection, but all those who did believed that resurrection was what God would do for all God's people on the last day. It would be a large-scale, last-minute event. The early Christians believed, extraordinarily and unprecedentedly, that this had happened in one case in the middle of history to Jesus himself. Resurrection as an event had split into two, a prototype with the rest to follow. That's very clear in Paul, and it's very clear in all the subsequent thinkers who echo Paul. And what is more, a further wrinkle within the Jewish worldview, they believed that because resurrection had begun with Jesus and was going to be complete at the last day, they could actually go to work with God to make resurrection signs, as it were, signs of God's kingdom happen in the here and now. That was something which no Jew had ever thought of because, of course, no Jew believed before Jesus' disciples that somebody had actually been bodily raised from the dead in this way. And the final mutation is that no Jew before the time of Jesus believed that the Messiah would be raised from the dead for the simple reason that no Jew believed the Messiah would die. So the Messiah was raised. That's the foundation of the early Christian belief. And if we ask as historians, why did all these wrinkles in Jewish resurrection belief happen? And not only happen, but happen right across the board. And I've tracked that in the big book on resurrection, and I've summarized it in the, in the little one here. Then the answer that, of course, they all come up with is, we didn't expect to be here, as it were, but we believe what we believe about our resurrection because Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. And, of course, that's what it says in the Gospels. But here we face a problem. And uh, Eric alluded to the Jesus Seminar earlier, but it's not only the Jesus Seminar. It's an entire swathe of scholarship for the last 200 years has said, because we are modern historians with the Enlightenment at our backs, we cannot believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. We know that can't have happened. Therefore, the stories in the Gospels must have been made up much later in order to pull together some sort of attempt at a story. But actually, either the body was stolen or they all just said their prayers and waited 
for 10 years and read the Bible and then maybe imagined that Jesus was present with them or that they felt they were forgiven or that Jesus' cause was continuing or something. Scholars have come up with quite a large variety of interesting other ways of explaining the rise of early Christianity. Because get this straight, between roughly 200 BC and 150 AD, we know of 10, a dozen, maybe 15 revolutionary or messianic movements which had leader figures, prophet figures, messiah figures at their head. Most of those movements ended with the violent death of the leader. If the leader got killed in those movements, and we can track these movements through the historian Josephus, then you had a choice. Either you give up the revolution or you get yourself another messiah. In none of those other cases do they go around saying, actually, we think he's been raised from the dead. And I do a little thought experiment in the book. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans under Titus, the general who was the adopted son of Vespasian, who'd gone to Rome to become emperor. He had been besieging Jerusalem. Titus took, as you may know, a large number of Jewish captives back to Rome with him. That's how you did it in the days before ticker tape parades and and video links, etc. You had to bring all the people that you'd conquered to prove that you'd conquered them and weren't just making it up, you know. Um, And the way they did it was they had their parade with the triumphant leader at the front and coming, bringing up the rear were the bedraggled captives and at the very end was the king of the captive nation. And there was a man called Simon Bargiora, who was one of the revolutionary leaders in Jerusalem at the time. And he was dragged along behind the procession. And then he was ceremonially executed. That's what the Romans did to show, we run this show, you got in our way, this is what happens to you. He was the king of the Jews, if you like. All this is history. Now, supposing a few days or weeks later, some Jewish Uh, supporters of Simon who'd managed not to get captured or killed were in hiding and one of them said you know I think Simon has been raised from the dead the others would say what do you mean he's been raised from the dead we saw him get killed we heard um, the the, the word that he oh no this this person says um, I, I have a sense of his presence with me I think his movement still lives on I've been praying and thinking and and remembering all those wonderful scriptures about how God takes us through a dark valley and out the other side and I sense that maybe we have to carry on the movement and the others if they were faced with something like that would say well if that's how you feel fine uh, praying and reading scripture and having nice warm feelings in your heart is great that our tradition can cope with that but don't say he's been raised from the dead because he obviously hasn't been resurrection in other words was not a metaphor for his cause lives on It was a way of saying something actually happened. There's a poem by John Updike which says this, which I quote in the book, Let us not mock God with metaphor. It's a great poem. I commend it to you. And the thing about the gospel stories, just again very briefly, why should we believe those gospel stories? Why can we be sure they weren't made up much later? Four features of them very briefly. First, interestingly... 
Yes, the gospel writers were soaked in the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the scriptures back to front and upside down. And when they were telling the story of Jesus going to his death, they told it lovingly with scriptural allusion and echo all over the place. When they tell the story of the resurrection, there is virtually no echo or quote from the Old Testament. There are one or two, but it's just in a completely different register. How so? The earliest Christians believed that Jesus was raised in accordance with the scriptures, but the stories bear the mark of being the breathless early narratives that people had told when they were still confused on the first day, before they'd had time to go and read the scriptures or think back through their traditions and stories like that that are so powerful once they get told and told and told stick in their original forms the second thing is of course the presence of the women in the stories now i'm sorry about this in terms of today's political correctness but in first century judaism or paganism women were not regarded as credible witnesses in a court of law If you had been making up this extraordinary story 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years later, you certainly would never have had women as the principal witnesses. But there they are in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In Paul, because Paul is quoting in 1 Corinthians 15 a public tradition, the women have been sadly airbrushed out of it. And Jesus appears to Peter and James and and the other disciples, and then last of all to Paul himself. That's what the church had already come to, because it was anxious about telling a story that everyone would mock at. But in the Gospels, the women are there. These must be very, very early. Then there's the portrait of Jesus. The portrait of Jesus is astonishing because he doesn't shine like a star. We got one of those stories earlier in the Gospels in the so-called transfiguration. But in the Gospel accounts of the resurrection, Jesus appears as a man among humans. And yet he's different. His closest friends look at him twice. There's one extraordinary verse where John says, none of them dared ask him, the risen Jesus, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. He is the same and yet somehow different. How can you explain that? At the the time, it seems they couldn't. One of the reasonably skeptical New Testament scholars of our age, Ed Sanders, whose work some of you may be familiar with, puts it like this. He says, it really looks as though the early Christians were trying to say something for which they knew they didn't really have the right language. That's how the stories read. It'd be very difficult to make up stories like that and keep them so spare and restrained while yet making that point. And then, anticipating what I'm going to say in the second and much shorter part of this lecture, um, in those stories of Jesus on Easter morning, there is astonishingly for us no mention of the Christian future hope. Now, some of you are preachers. I see some dog collars around. I was firmly told not to wear my own dog collar tonight, so I thought as a bishop I would wear a purple purple bow tie instead to keep keep the party going. Um, But... Preachers, it's very easy on Easter Day to preach a sermon which goes, Jesus is raised from the dead, therefore there really is a life after death, therefore this is how you get to go there. And it's very interesting that neither Matthew nor Mark nor Luke nor John puts it like that. They say, Jesus has been raised from the dead, therefore God's new creation has begun, and therefore we have a job to do. Oh, and as we contemplate that, We say, who is this Jesus? 
He was and is the Messiah. He was and is the Son of God. But the key thing is not, therefore, we're going to leave this world and go somewhere else. But new creation has kicked in. And we are not only the beneficiaries of that, we are called to be the agents of that. And that's how the stories work. And that's why I am forced as a historian to say these stories must be very, very early. They do not show the marks of later theological reflection. They must be, as the stories were told, within the first 10 years of the Christian movement. And they force us to say, and this is cutting several long arguments very short, they force us to say that we have to say there was an empty tomb because if all there had been were apparitions of Jesus, they knew about ghosts and visions and revelations and strange things that go bump in the night. They would have just said, well, that was very odd, but it's one of those things. But when there's an empty tomb as well, then how are you going to explain it? And there must have been apparitions because an empty tomb by itself proves nothing. People robbed graves in the ancient world. The literature is full of that. There must have been an empty tomb and sightings of Jesus, meetings with Jesus, in which he did things like eating and breaking bread and so on, and invited some people to touch him, though that too is a little strange. And the question the historian faces then is, how do you explain that? Now, at this point, let me be clear. I am not, as it were, twisting your arm behind your back and saying, I'm going to argue you by brute intellectual force into believing that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. At this point in the argument, interestingly, I gave my big book, um, among, uh, as well as to my father, gave it to my old philosophy tutor, who's a lifelong atheist. And he read it from cover to cover and wrote me a very interesting letter about it. And he said, I can see how your argument works, and that's fine, you've lined it up very well. He said, but I choose to believe that there must be some other explanation, even though I don't know what it is. Now, in a sense... That's fine, as long as you realize that that is a choice. I choose to believe that there is no resurrection of the dead, that there is no God who raises the dead, that the world simply isn't like that. The alternative is to say, my goodness, this is not about shutting your eyes and screwing your courage to the sticking place and believing 13 impossible things before breakfast. It's about saying... (laughs) It's about saying maybe, actually, there is a God who made a good world and who wants to sort this world out. And maybe this God, as the climax of his plan to sort this world out, has done something so stupendous that a new way of being creation has opened up. So that the resurrection of Jesus is not a very odd event within the old world the way it's always been. It is rather the characteristic and prototypical event within the new world which is coming to birth. An example I've sometimes used, and I think I use it in the book, which I'm reminded of because of the august surroundings we're in, is supposing a a, a college or a club or something gets given by some illustrious old member uh, a wonderful work of art, a huge, great canvas, which is absolutely stunning and striking and just the most amazing piece of art that you could imagine. And the members of the club say, 
we can't put it on that wall, it's the wrong shape and it would do the wrong thing to the aesthetic. We can't put it over there because there's a window, can't put it up there. We search around, the, there is nowhere we can put this thing. But it is so amazing and so stupendous that we're going to have to find a way of housing it. And then somebody says with a gulp, maybe we need to pull down some walls and rebuild with this thing in the middle. That's how the resurrection of Jesus works in terms of worldview. It isn't something you can just fit into a rationalist, modernist worldview or indeed into an ancient Platonic worldview. It's just as much of a scandal intellectually in the first century as it is in the 21st century. Don't be fooled by those who say that uh, uh, people in those days believed in resurrection because they were pre-modern, so they believed in all kinds of funny things, but we modern historians know better. Um, Aeschylus knew that resurrection doesn't happen. Homer knew that resurrection doesn't happen. Pliny, the elder, says that resurrection doesn't happen. This is, this is not news. The point is this. When you put the resurrection in the middle of your worldview, even though it's a costly and dangerous thing to do, you discover, to revert to my illustration, that all the finest features of the building that were there before, you get back again only now enhanced. And all the bits of the building that didn't really quite work as well as they should have done before get sorted out. That's what the resurrection does to your worldview. Now, as a tailpiece, there's a nice little tailpiece in the book, a reward for those who make it to the end. You shouldn't read it before the rest of the book. It spoils the story. But the tailpiece that I'm going to give you is just to say, <clears throat> in this country particularly, more so than in mine, there is a huge thing about heaven and hell, about going to heaven and going to hell. Many more people think of it here than they do in England. Perhaps I should be sad about that. But I discover that many in the churches only have a very sketchy idea of what it is that Christians are supposed to believe. And that if you start telling people that heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world, they look at you very strangely. The, the point about heaven or paradise is that it is the blissful resting place where people go to be with Christ until the day when God makes new heavens and new earth. The Christian hope is much bigger than most Christians and I dare say most non-Christians have ever imagined. In the New Testament, we are told that it is God's plan to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And St. Paul speaks about the whole creation groaning in travail like a woman waiting to have a child and that one day the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay to share the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is the Christian hope. And our hope for our own future embodiment, resurrection, takes place within that. Of course, there are puzzles about resurrection. I taught a course at Harvard eight years ago on resurrection. And when I got to this point, one of the female students put a hand up and said, look, I've been fed up with this nose of mine ever since I first started looking in mirrors. If I get raised from the dead, will I have to have a nose the same shape as I do now? <clears throat> 
And that's a typical sort of question that people ask. And of course, the answer is God knows what God is going to do. And resurrection is God's work. We don't have to plan it. Tertullian faced, um, a theologian at the end of the second century, faced the question, supposing a cannibal eats a Christian and supposing the cannibal then gets converted, who is going to have which which bits of the body in the resurrection? Um, And he basically said, oh, don't ask silly questions. But actually, it's not a silly question, as his near-contemporary origin saw, because actually the human body is in a constant state of flux. It isn't just hair and fingernails. It's our entire molecular kit that gets changed roughly every seven years or so. And early scientists knew that as well as we did. They didn't have all the analysis, but they knew that that was so. C.S. Lewis says at this point in the argument, we are to that extent like the curve in a waterfall. There is continuity of form but discontinuity of matter. In other words, it's not a big deal to get the same molecules back again. What matters is that God is going to give you a body in which you will be really you, more you, dare I say, than you are at the moment. You know, we sometimes say if somebody's very sick, poor old so-and-so, he's just a shadow of his former self. The good news is that if you are in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit, you are right now just a shadow of your future self. And that future self is the self that will inhabit and indeed help to run God's new world, his new heavens, his new earth. That, I submit, is an astonishing and exciting prospect. There's much else I could say about that, not least about the second coming. Because when you put together the picture, the biblical picture of new heavens and new earth, it makes sudden surprising sense to see Jesus appearing at the center of that picture. So much second coming language involves Jesus the spaceman, Jesus flying around on a cloud. No. Heaven is not a place up in the sky. I once wrote an article in a periodical called Bible Review deconstructing the rapture mythology of the Left Behind series. And among the letters that the editor received, you know, cancelling subscriptions and that sort of thing, um, (laughs) was one which said, how does Mr. Wright think he's going to get to heaven if he doesn't get raptured? Isn't that extraordinary? Are there really people in this wonderful late modern culture who think that heaven is a a geographical location a few miles up in the sky? I think maybe there are people who think that. That's not true. In the Bible, heaven is God's dimension of reality. It intersects with ours in mysterious but powerful ways. And one day, the thin veil that separates the two will be drawn back. And the Jesus who is present but invisible in our world as it is, will be present and ruling and reigning, and we will be his people. That's what the New Testament teaches. What is the so what, then? You might have thought, with a great hope like that, that the main thing for a Christian to do would be say, well, keep on track because it's going to be super up ahead. And indeed, that is true. But when St. Paul gets to this point in his argument, he says something really interesting. He says, therefore, my beloved ones, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work because you know that in the Lord it's not wasted. 
Now, what's the logic of that, that therefore, because there is a new world and a resurrection, what you do in the present is not wasted? Let me put it like this. When you work for God's kingdom in the world, when you write a beautiful poem, when you feed the hungry or house the homeless, when you teach children in a slum, when you go and help dig wells in Africa, when you work for God's kingdom to come as Jesus taught us on earth as in heaven, when you do all those things, you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that is one day going to drop off a cliff. You know, why would you bother? This car's finished anyway. Why bother repairing it? There are many people today, including sadly many Christians, who think that because this world is just uh, a shabby old bad thing, God's going to throw it in the trash and take us somewhere else. No, God is going to remake this world. And what you do in the present, in the power of the Spirit, matters for the future with your own body as paul says and with the rest of the world the resurrection challenge is that we are to implement the achievement of jesus in his resurrection and thereby to anticipate the final new creation and that gives you enough agenda for a whole other lecture and actually that's the third part of the book and uh, it's already raised some hairs including here in new york i had lunch with richard john newhouse today and we talked about some of that um if you want to ask questions about those sort of things i'm happy for that but let me just say as far as i'm concerned this picture of new creation is not my own invention it is in scripture it is not something which was forgotten by much of the church until comparatively recently. It's the Western church in the last two or three hundred years which has drifted into a sort of semi-Platonism in which going to heaven is the only thing that really matters. But our forebears knew better than that. Interestingly, a lot of you, I think, here in this room have had a certain amount to do with, with Willie Wilberforce. Again, a hat tip to Eric for his book came out not long ago. Wilberforce was the sort of Christian who believed that because Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead, you jolly well had to go on and free the slaves and do all of that other stuff about reforming society. Somewhere during the course of the 19th century, two things happened in parallel. First, people stopped talking about resurrection and started talking about just going to heaven. Second, evangelicals who came from the same stable as Wilberforce stopped caring about social justice and thought that the main thing to do was to save souls. My friends, it's time to put the picture back together again and get the church and the world back on track with the good news not only of Jesus' resurrection but of a new world which we are called to help to make. Thank you very much. I can kind of see how he got to be bishop, can't you? Uh, thank you very much. I'm happy to say that we have some time uh, for Q&A. Now, the way we do that, we have a microphone there. You must fight your way to the microphone, and you must really fight the temptation to phrase your question in the form of a non-question. <laughs> and you must also keep it to about 16 syllables... You can go 18 if you have to, but please count syllables. It's important. We want everybody who wants to ask a question to be able to ask a question. So um, uh, let's go ahead and do that. Mako. 
I think that's too difficult. I, I had to create a haiku here. Um, <laughs> I, I'm one of those people, I'm an artist, and would love to hear you expand on the, um, why the arts are important, if that is true. Thank you. One of the great things, I think, about postmodernity is that we have got away from the modernist idea in which the arts were the pretty bit around the edge, but reality was kind of brutal and concrete and solid in the middle. Arts as mere decoration. And we are recapturing a sense of art as a genuine window into the very heart of things, a way of saying things, a way of knowing things, which is not reducible to speech or other forms. I think it was Margot Fontaine who, when asked what she meant by a particular dance, said, if I could have said it, I wouldn't have needed to dance it. And it was a great answer. In the book, I have one chapter where I talk about justice, beauty, and evangelism. And I say, that's a very odd trio. But actually, if the church is caring passionately about justice, it is saying, we believe in a God who wants to set this world right. And if the church is caring passionately about beauty and being procreators of beauty, we are saying, we believe in a good creator God who wants to make a world that is even more spectacular and beautiful than this. And art can reflect both the present pain of the world and that future hope. And it seems to me that is a way through which is neither keech nor brutalism. And we've got a lot of keech and a lot of brutalism at the moment. And I look for Christians to lead the way in art and music and poetry and dance and everything in a way which actually clears the ground within which then we can say Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead and people will see what we mean because it is about justice and it is about beauty. Thank you for a great question. Yes. Hi. I've, I've heard this vision now both from you and from my own pastor, Dr. Timothy Keller, about uh, since the complete the completion of this, the transformation, restoration of the world will someday absolutely take place that we better get started uh, partaking and, and being agents of that change, not just the beneficiaries, but agents of that change. And uh, something that I struggle with, both in the whole sanctification process as well as this get busy and restore the world because it's going to be completed someday, is, is like, well, how does it make sense? You say that that's the reason why it makes sense that we should get busy, but I look at it like, what if I had a, a really bad wreck in my car, and I have it scheduled to go into the body shop to be completely restored. But you know what? It's a couple of weeks, and in the meantime, let me wash it and wax it. Because it's not going to waste, because someday it's going to be completely restored. Do you know what I mean? Sort of. Why bother washing yeah. my car? It's got to be completely dismantled and, and redone, and then finally they will wash it and wax it, and it'll be perfect. <laughs> Much better than I will, actually, if you've ever seen me wash a car. Yeah. You yeah. know that. The, the, the short answer is that, and, and all pastors in the room will know this, if somebody comes to you and says, 
Um, look, I have a problem about sin. You know, I find I keep on sinning and I can't seem to stop. And it's a real pain, but that's just the way I seem to be at the moment. But the good news is that one day God is going to make me over again into a completely sinless person. So I'm just not going to bother. I'll carry on sinning at the moment and uh, doing whatever comes. And uh, sooner or later, God will restore me. Then it is precisely the argument that if you are in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit, you are part of new creation already. This is the argument of Romans 6, where Paul faces exactly that. In other words, you get hit with some fairly radical inaugurated eschatology. It's, it's got a, you, you mightn't say that in the pastoral interview, but that's, that's, that's what it is. That, that something which you might think was going to happen at the very end is coming forward to meet you in the present. Unless you realize that, you haven't understood what it means to be a Christian. Now, of course, you can break it down with the illustration of the car, and I take your point. If they're going to do that stuff in the garage anyway, why worry? But it seems to me that actually God's purpose isn't like that. One of the odd things about the way the kingdom of God works, and this is what half the parables in the Gospels are about, is that uh, when God is taking charge, and that's what kingdom of God means, it doesn't look like we thought it would. You know, it looks like seeds growing secretly. It looks like a small mustard seed that turns out to be a larger shrub than we imagined. There are funny things going on, and they're going on in the present, and we can't anticipate the harvest that's to come, but we look and say, something's happening here. And so all the illustrations that we've got are likely to be jumbled around and juggled up a bit this way and that. So I, I really do... The, the image that I use in the book, which is very important for me, it's an image taken from, and obviously I'm Bishop of Durham, you may know Durham Cathedral, one of the finest buildings on the planet, according to Bill Bryson, the finest building on the planet, and, and so who am I to disagree with the great American sage? Um, <laughs> but uh, I imagine the stonemasons in the yard when Durham Cathedral is being built, and the stonemasons, who are probably illiterate, are given a block of stone and told, I want you to carve it this shape and thus and so with this pattern and so on. And the stonemason isn't building the cathedral. He is building for the cathedral. One day the builder will come and take all those bits and put them into this fantastic structure. And he will look and say, good Lord, that's my bit up there. He is building for the and In the same way, we are building for the kingdom in ways that we cannot see. Jesus said, if you give someone a cup of cold water because they're a disciple, you won't lose your reward. You know, the little acts of generosity and kindness, as well as the great acts of justice and mercy, are part of the kingdom that is being built. And the key to it all is, to use some Latin tags, but they, they help locate it, the new creation is not a creatio ex nihilo, a new creation out of nothing. It's a creatio ex vetere, a creation out of the old. And the model for that is Jesus' own resurrection. Jesus' body was transformed, and it still had the marks of the nails. The signs of love are still there. And we have to work out what that's going to mean. Sorry, long answer, but a good question. Yes, ma'am. <clears throat> Please. Thank you so much, Bishop. It thrills me to hear you. And I am asking, how do we do this with regard to the unity of the church, with the struggle of denominationalism? It, it is my heart as I minister as a chaplain in transportation in New York City, but I see this everywhere. <clears throat> how do we do this as Christians and not as Oh, this because it belies the very 
calling that we have yeah. from yeah, the scriptures. I, I agree. Um, denominationalism is, is a real problem because we can get very, very stuck in our own ways. And we Anglicans, stroke Episcopalians, co constitute an ecumenical movement in miniature even within ourselves. And that can be very painful. Jonathan Sachs, who is chief rabbi of Great Britain currently, is a wonderful thinker and writer and speaker, speaks of two different kinds of conversations, face-to-face -face conversations and side-by-side -side conversations. And, 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 transpose, and he's talking about interfaith dialogue there, but transposing that into Christian work together. I have found uh, in the last five years since I've been a bishop that the best ecumenical work is what we do when we say we need to have a new initiative in mission in this area. Let's link arms and do it together. And we can all agree on a great deal that we can do together. At a certain point, we will say, let's pray together, and we can pray together. At a certain point, someone will say, let's share the Eucharist together, and we say... Actually, there are some people in some churches who won't do that, and that's tricky. And we wrestle with that. We bump up against those hard, looking at each other places. But to do the work of mission together, the key thing, and again, I say this in the book, we talk about mission-shaped church. The church exists in order to be the mission agency to the world. If we are doing that and allowing then the next generation of structures to be shaped by that, we may find that some bits, at least, of the ecumenical jigsaw shake themselves into a new pattern. I have found that in limited ways in my own ministry, and I pray that for uh, the Anglican Communion, but also for all denominations. Thank you. Thank you. Next question, yeah. In your argument about the uh, historicity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, uh, you place a great deal of emphasis on the singularity of that resurrection and how that uh, unprecedented event changed the paradigms that existed at the time. Um, if that's the case, then how, does, how do you reconcile the precedents that existed in the gospel accounts themselves, you know, Luke 7 and Jesus, yeah, yeah, yeah. the son, or even further back through Elijah, how did uh, Elijah raising? How did those resurrections coincide or be reconciled with the notion of the singularity of Jesus' yeah. resurrection? Those those raisings. Thank you for raising that because the, the, that is a question which had the had been world enough in time, I would have dealt with. Um, those raisings are raisings back into the same sort of life that we already have. You see this very sharply with the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11, where after Lazarus has been raised, the chief priests get to hear about this, and they want to put Lazarus to death as well as Jesus, um, to destroy the evidence, as it were. Um, and, of course, Jairus's daughter, who is raised from the dead, and the widow's son at Nain, who you instanced in Luke chapter 7, um, these, it is assumed, are raised in order to die again at some later stage. And one of the, And this is one of the extraordinary things which... Nobody had quite figured out, it seems, before, but is very emphatic in very, very early Christianity when Paul says in Romans 6 that the Messiah being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no more dominion over him. In other words, the others went down into death and came back again. Jesus went down into death and came out the other side into a new sort of... And this is the, this is the scary bit because... We don't have a model for this in the nature of the case. Into a new sort of embodiment which was now immune to death. 
And the idea of a non-corruptible physicality is very hard for us Western minds to get our minds around because for us physicality is uh, mutable, is changeable. But that's what the Gospels all seem to be saying. And the fascinating thing, as I say, is that the Gospel narratives seem to be saying that artlessly and then it's left to Paul and the others to theorize about it. But that's the key difference. Thank you. This could be a quick question. Is there anybody in the academic or orthodox, say, evangelical world that, are, that is opposing your presentation? That is, is there anybody defending the platonic view of going to heaven when you die? That's a nice question. I, I'm not sure I know the answer. I have come in for some flack from people who've said, you know, uh, I, I now don't know what to say to people when... Uh, at a funeral when they say, where is our dear departed friend or, or whatever. Um, but, but actually, if they look at the small print, there are those... You see, it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? The New Testament isn't terribly interested in where people go when they die. It's very interested in the ultimate future. But at every funeral or every bereavement visit that one does, one is faced with the question, what do we say about where they are now? And you've got Luke 23... Today you will be with me in paradise. And, and this isn't, as first thing suggested, a literalistic interpretation. Today means today. We're not talking about resurrection. We're talking about an intermediate state. Paul in, first, in, in Philippians 1, uh, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. And then famously, John 14, in my father's house are many dwelling places. It was in the lectionary last Sunday. Some of you may have heard or even preached sermons on it. What's the, but the Greek word for dwelling places is mone, and a mone is not a place you go and live forever and ever. It's a wayside inn where you go and rest before continuing your journey. So, no, I'm not getting much flack from Orthodox folk, although I did have one Baptist from Colorado who emailed me to say, I read your book and I preached it at Easter, and my elders took me on one side afterwards and said, we've never heard this before, we're not sure where you got that. And so, <laughs> um, so it, it is a shock to people, but it seems to me that anyone who is steeped in Scripture should recognize this. I, I'm not claiming to say anything new. I'm trying to give you back the stuff that you didn't know you had. Yeah. Okay. Um, your argument about the kind of reinstation of the created order um, instead of being, you know, abolished and uh, reconstituted, er, abolished and created again out of nothing um, is very invigorating to me, but I would like to know how it reconciles with the verse that I think is in First Peter where uh, he makes the statement that uh, the elements will yeah. melt with a fervent heat. And it's, it's actually in 2 Peter, and it's 2 Peter 3, and there is uh, a, a long and I had thought tedious footnote on it. Um, it's actually not tedious because it's really quite important. That is one of the very, very few verses in the whole New Testament where there is a very serious variant reading. That is where the manuscripts have significantly different words and where the key word in the middle of the sentence comes out differently in different manuscripts. And the one that was translated in the King James Version has um, the, the, the world basically being abolished and 
and, and disappearing, but the one which now most critical editions of the Greek New Testament will give you, and if you want, I can show you this afterwards because I've got a Greek Testament with me. Um, didn't think of bringing it for this reason, but it would serve, um, is, is that actually the world and all that is in it will be made manifest, that will be laid bare. And, and the two Greek words are very similar, but obviously in meaning they come out very differently. That, so, and this isn't just a bit of scholarly fancy footwork. There's been a lot of work done on that. And I think most scholars would now accept that the reading of the world being laid bare and open to God's gaze is actually the true one. Thank you. We have a long queue here. Let's keep going. You mentioned uh, the historical approach, and somebody else talked about the singularity of the resurrection. Uh, given that, to me, the, the real singularity is this was God who, who was in history. That's the, that's the New Testament claim about Jesus. So I wonder if you can comment on uh, the limitations of the Gospels that his, you know, in commenting on this. I mean, how, how far can history go, given that this was such a unique event? And it seems like the first century people needed an experience, and it seems like we need more than history today as well. So the limitations of history in those documents. Yeah. The gospel is about more than history, but not less. And that's really important because history is part of, as it were, the created order. And the gospel is about the remaking of the created order, which means it's about the remaking, not the unmaking of history. A great deal of Western thought, including a great deal of Western New Testament scholarship in the last 200 years, has tried to get away from history for the same reason that it has tried to get away from the idea of the goodness of creation. There's been a lot of radical dualism. And uh, actually what needs to be done, I believe, and I've, I've made some hints at this in various of my writings, is the rethinking of the discipline of history around what is going on here of course, some people, when they say history, mean a kind of enlightenment-based historiography where you have a Procrustes bed of what you will allow as fact and what you won't, and you simply exclude anything that doesn't fit that rather mechanistic view of the cosmos. But actually, most... Um, I was thinking of John Polkinghorne, who was mentioned earlier. Um, most physicists would say, no, sorry, the universe is much more complicated than, than that enlightenment worldview would suggest. <clears throat> But it is absolutely radically important for the truth of Christianity that you can talk historically about the event of the resurrection, even though resurrection bursts the bounds of history. It is, it is more than historical, but not less. I appreciate that this requires quite a major rethink at the level of worldview. And that is what one should expect. You can't, to repeat what I said before, fit the resurrection into any existing worldview, not even the first century Jewish worldview. As we see, it bursts out of that, creates its own new categories. It's like, and, and, and I, in the big book on the resurrection, I use the image of, um, of, looking, at the, uh, of looking at the sun and of trying to capture the sun and, and or bring it down to earth. You can't do that, just as you can't stare directly at the sun. But in the light of the sun, you can see everything else clearly. So we need history. Um, Christianity appeals to history. And interestingly, as a little sort of catchy tailpiece, 
notice how the declining away from a historical account is also the declining away from a political account. Thanks. Thanks for an outstanding talk. Um, just expanding on what you just said about um, you know, trying to fit the resurrection into a present-day worldview, do you think when, when you're debating with someone like your, your old professor who just chooses not to accept that because of a rationalistic mindset, I mean, do, do you think you can argue that the idea that maybe someday science will account for the resurrection, that one, that one day, or it will, will always be something that is outside of a rationalistic conception that, that, can't, can't, that can't be reconciled and must be accepted on faith? Yeah, except that I don't, I'm, I'm not quite happy about the phrase must be accept, accepted on faith because you may not have intended it this way, but the way I often hear that is a kind of antithesis between faith and reason so that, well, you can, reason can take you so far, then you have to take this flying leap into the unknown. And frankly, it isn't really like that. It's more of a continual dialogue or maybe a kind of a complex spiral process where reason is continually asking questions and faith is continually asking questions back again and the two go on together. It isn't first you do one, then you do the other. So that, but, but no, I do not imagine that science studying the world the way it is will turn a corner one day and say, ah, this is it, that's why resurrection happened, you know. Because the whole point is this is new creation. Science characteristically studies, this is the difference in, actually also between science and history, science studies the repeatable, history studies the unrepeatable. There's a the huge difference, and that's very important, actually, because people sometimes talk about scientific historiography as though you could pull history across into being a science and say that you only know things that you can repeat. You can't repeat events in history. The conditions are never the same. History always studies the unrepeatable. Of course, there are analogues and parallels, but new things are always happening. So, I mean, there was somebody, when I was researching the big book on resurrection, I came across somebody who was saying exactly that. Maybe one day science will get to the point where it says, ah, Jesus was just a slightly more advanced type of human being, and maybe there'll be more. And so, you know, he, this, this happened to him. And that's a way of putting the new wine back into the old bottles, to be honest. Great. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Bishop Wright. I'm very happy for the uh, realism of your interpretation of the New Testament. Uh, my question is, um, is life after death simply a kind of blissful rest or sleep? If this is the case, what does one make of the fairly early uh, Christian belief in the, um, in the uh, uh, resurrection, if you like, or the bodily assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary? <laughs> and the active participation of the saints in our life here. Thank you. That's a whole other, I was going to say, can of worms. Far be it from me to say it. <clears throat> um, uh, rather inappropriate metaphor at that point. Um, um, the condition of those who are asleep in Christ, asleep is a metaphor, because uh, the, the word sleep or asleep 
in, in the Hebrew is a way of referring to somebody who is dead but will, will wake up later. In, in Daniel, those who sleep in the dust of the earth will, will awake. But it doesn't mean unconsciousness so that when Paul says we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed and so on, um, I think he is referring to a conscious resting. In the book of Revelation in chapter 6, we find that uh, those who are asleep under the altar wake up and say to the Lord, how long, O Lord, how long? And they're told to rest a little longer um, and uh, all will be fulfilled, which does imply that those who have already died are actively engaged in some sort of intercessory work. I have no problem about that. Indeed, you know, it would be odd if they weren't, in a sense, in that if they are enjoying the presence of Christ, um, then to, to do a kind of a more wide-ranging theological take, they might well be deemed to be sharing in that work whereby Christ himself intercedes with the Father, as Paul says in Romans 8. He is at the right hand of God. He also intercedes for us. The further question, though, which only gradually came in and which has divided Christians for many, many years is whether it is right for us to invoke them to do that for us or whether, as the Eastern Orthodox say, we pray with the saints and for the saints and they pray with us and for us because we are all incomplete until the resurrection. It seems to me that Eastern Orthodox tradition is much nearer the truth. And I note that in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Mary, the mother of Jesus, falls asleep in the sleep of death, that is the Dormition, which is different from the Western tradition, which has her being bodily assumed into heaven. Um, I couldn't possibly, at this time of night and with this throat that I've got, start in on the reasons why the assumption came to be believed in the West or the reasons why I find it very tricky, except to say that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Christ is raised as the first fruits, and at his coming, those who belong to Christ. In other words, Paul sees it as one person in advance and all those who belong to Christ at the same time at the end. And that gives me a framework for saying, at this point, I prefer the older Eastern Orthodox tradition to the more modern Western one.